Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. I do remember I have two daughters, which is not really that significant, except for, in my case, my daughters are 13 and 10. That's weird, <laughs> right? He's an old guy. How did that happen? I can't remember that either. <laughs> My 13-year-old, though, got baptized when she was six. And um, it was a couple years later, about when she was eight, she started asking questions about God. She had gotten the what kind of squared away, at least to her uh, satisfaction at six years old, but when she was about eight, she's starting to ask the why questions. And these are the kinds of things that I answer, I deal with as a, as a, uh, a Christian. And so she said to me, Papa, why do we believe that God is true? Or actually, she said, how do we know that God is true? In other words, how, how, how do we know that God really exists? We believe in Him, we trust in Him, but how do we know He's really there? And so I'm thinking to myself, how do I explain that to her in a way that kind of makes sense to an eight-year-old? And as I was thinking about it, a, a phrase popped into my mind, and I realized once I said it that this really captured my entire approach to making the case for Christianity and for God over and against all the other options. And here's what I told her. I said, the reason that we believe that God is true, honey, is because He's the best explanation for the way things are. I want to repeat that. In fact, I think you should write that down because this is really a theme of this talk. The reason that we believe that God is true, that He's real, that our confidence in Him is not misplaced is because He's the best explanation for the way things are. When we look around in the world and we want an explanation for why the world is the way it is, why reality is like it is, it turns out that the existence of God does the best job of making sense of the world. So this goes to the issue of explanatory power. And later on, my daughter would be asking questions. She'd say, well, Papa, how do atheists account for this in the world? And then she'd give an example. Well, how do they account for this? Because she had internalized the concept that one's worldview has to do a, a good job at, at explaining the way the world really was. And she also saw that atheism was not adequate to do the job. And in fact, at one point she said, why, why do atheists even believe, even believe there's no God? Why don't they believe in God? And I said, well, honey, and I'm trying to be fair to them. I said, well, honey, they, they can't see God. And so that's why they don't believe in him. And that's an oversimplified way of putting it, but it made sense to her, except for she thought about it for a moment. She said, well, can they see atoms? I said, well, that's that's a, you're on the right track. That's a fair point. But to be fair to the atheists, they would say they can't see them with their eyes, but they can detect them with instruments so they, their existence is available to them through the five senses. And they won't believe in anything they can't see in that way. And she thought this was the dumbest thing she'd ever heard of. <laughs> now, now why, why is it 
my daughter was onto something that a lot more of educated and intellectual types seem to have missed, and that is that there are lots of things that are real that are not physical. Let me say that again. There are lots of things that are real that are not physical. We experience them every day, and we are in contact with them every day. I'm going to give you some examples in just a moment, but it's a very straightforward, common-sense principle. Okay, so how did she know that? Because she didn't go to grad school. That's a joke. <laughs> go to college, you unlearn all the obvious things that common sense comports with. In any event, my, the insights of my daughter at that moment and of ordinary folk who see the world the way it really is uh, speak to the inadequacies of a view that I want to talk about today, and that view is called naturalism. Naturalism, all right? So what is naturalism? Naturalism is the, is the in a certain sense, the religion of an atheist. And I know that some might be put off by the way I put that, but I think it's a fair way of putting it. The psalmist says, we heard it this morning, the heavens declare the glory of God. In other places, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. And as we say, this is my father's world is the point there. But the naturalist, by contrast, says otherwise. The naturalist, in a sense, Doctrine can be summed up in the famous phrase, phrase by Carl Sagan in the scientific um, video series called The Cosmos. And here's what he said. The cosmos is all there is or ever was or ever will be. This is my father's world. The heavens declare the glory of God. No, no, no. It's the cosmos that is the only thing that exists on that view. And I say this is the atheist statement of faith because even though that's a science documentary, in that basic idea that undergirds the entire documentary of the cosmos, the cosmos is all there is, all there ever was, and all there ever will be. There's not a bit of science in that sentence. It is all metaphysics. It is all religion, okay? And I want to critique atheism and naturalism by taking a core look at that presumption. When I say naturalism, by the way, I mean naturalism in synonymous with materialism and physical world, physicalism. In other words, the material world, the world that we have access to by our five senses, is the only world that exists. There's nothing outside of that, okay? It's matter in motion governed by natural law. Now, one thought I want to offer you, because what I hope to do here is two things. If you're a follower of Christ, I hope to give you some tools that will help you engage with naturalists, atheists in conversation, and, and, and maybe challenge them a little bit. Now, if you're not a, a, a follower of Christ today, I'm glad you're here, okay? And I'm not going to try to convert you today, but I hope I annoy you a little bit, okay? I want to put a stone in your shoe. I want to give you something worth thinking about. Because I don't think the atheistic worldview is adequate to explain the world, and I think the view that Jesus had is much better, and that's what I'm going to contend, with, contend for here. And I understand that, that naturalism in some circles is a tough nut to crack, all right? That is, that a lot of people are really bought into this, 
and, uh, and it keeps them from even considering the claims of Jesus. But I, 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 there's some good news here too, because most atheists think that Christianity is intellectually bankrupt. They think all Christians do is take a wild, thoughtless leap of faith, and that's all it is, okay? Well, they're wrong about that. And so when we are able to give, like I'm going to give this morning, some thoughtful challenges to atheism, which turn out to be a support for Christian theism, well, they're surprised. They think, well, I never heard anything like that before. I, I thought you guys just took a wild leap of faith. I didn't know there were actually reasons for this. And so it catches them by surprise a little bit, the reasons I'm going to give shortly, and, and gets them thinking. And that should be encouraging. I, I want you to see something else, though, um, an insight that will suggest an approach, I think, that can be very productive. I want to let you in on a kind of a strategy here, okay? Um, as followers of Christ, with the Christian worldview, we have a tremendous ally on our side. One is the Holy Spirit. That's kind of obvious. But there's another ally you may not have thought about. And the ally is reality. We have reality on our side. Now, Francis Schaeffer years ago made this point. It really had an impact on me. He said, we actually live in the world that God made. This is our Father's world. That's the reality of the matter. And we are human beings that we're made in the image of God. That's reality also. Now, what happens when somebody denies that Christianity? Well, if it's a reflection of reality, then they are also denying reality to some degree. But they have to live in the world the way it really is. So if they are an atheist or a naturalist, I'm kind of using the term synonymously right now. Not all atheists are naturalists, but pretty much most are, 99.9%, okay? Then if they hold a view contrary to Christianity and Christianity reflects reality, then they are having a view that is inconsistent with the way the world really is. At some points, they're going to be denying reality. Now, reality has a way of getting your attention when you don't take it seriously. You end up bumping into it all the time, okay? And what I want to try to show you is that naturalistic atheists have to live in God's world, and they're going to bump into features of reality that do not make any sense in their worldview but are real. They make perfect sense in our worldview, and they're big things, but they make no sense in their worldview. Now, Francis Schaeffer called this a point of tension, that their views don't comport with reality, and they're going to bump into it. And at that bumping point, we have an opportunity to make an observation and help them to see that their view does not fit the real world. And by the way, the non-fitting of a view to a real world is the classic definition of being a false view, okay? When your view fits the world as it is, that's a true view. So let me give you some, some tools that will help you out, help you to demonstrate um, that um, Christianity has explanatory power. Before I get into the tools, though, I wanted to give you an example of how this happens with one of the new, the so-called new atheists, Richard Dawkins. I mean, he's a classic example of someone who, given his naturalistic, atheistic worldview, has to make a certain claim about the way the world is. 
But then, when he's not thinking about that, when he's engaging the world as it really is, he's making a claim that contradicts it. Here's what he says. With regards to morality, Richard Dawkins, consistent with his naturalism, believes that morality is an atheist, uh, rather an evolutionary trick. It's not real, okay? He says, there is no design in the universe, there is no purpose, there is no evil, and there is no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Now that's his naturalistic view, that's consistent. No evil, no good, blind, pitiless indifference. But then on the other hand, in his book, The God Delusion, when he writes about the God of the Old Testament, here's what he says, the God of the Old Testament is a vindictive, bloodthirsty, homophobic, racist genocidal, sadomasochistic, malevolent bully. That doesn't sound like he's talking from a universe with no design, no purpose, no evil, no good. That's not his naturalism talking. That is his common sense view of reality, that reality is filled with morality. And when he looks at the God of the Old Testament, he makes a judgment, a moral judgment on that God. And he thinks that God is bad. Well, goodness and badness have no role in a naturalistic worldview. What's happening with Richard Dawkins? He is bumping into reality at that particular point. That is, he's discovering something that is true, not that God is those things, but that the universe is a moral universe in which those kinds of assessments make sense, moral assessments, but that's inconsistent with his own view. And so what I want to show you is the explanatory power that Christianity has over and against a view like Richard Dawkins. Okay, so let's talk about some of those, those bumps with reality. I'm going to give you three of them. So these are three particular tools that you can use in your conversations with non-Christians, especially those who hold this view that will help them to see that their view does not fit reality, but your view does fit reality. I call them the bump of stuff, the bump of bad, and the bump of me. The bump of stuff, the bump of bad, and the bump of me. Now, some of you who've done some reading in this might recognize the first two is the cosmological argument and the moral argument. Those are arguments about things outside of us. The bump of me is the existential argument. In other words, it, it's an argument regarding our views and the inadequacies of naturalism based on what's inside of us, the human condition, our yearnings, our desires, our wants for, for deep meaning, for ultimate significance. And what do we do about the brokenness in our own lives, okay? This is the existential human predicament. So let's start with the bump of stuff. This, my starting point, by the way, in this argument is just that stuff exists. It's very, very simple. <laughs> Things exist, right? So the question is, and this is a very profound uh, philosophical question that many of you ask really without thinking about philosophy. Why is something here rather than nothing? Where did everything come from? Now, Scripture gives its answer. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, okay? God didn't come from anywhere. He didn't get created. He's been around all, all the time. He's eternal. But the universe, God made it. Now, naturalists 
by and large understand that the universe came into existence, just like Genesis 1-1 says, but they don't acknowledge the Creator because that's a problem for them. So how do we employ this to make our particular case and try to put a stone in their shoe? I had a, a challenger asked her at a Q&A once at an event, uh, prove to me God exists. Now, if anybody asks you to prove God, you always have a problem. And I mentioned to him, I said, I don't know what you'd accept as proof. If I gave you all kinds of reasons, if we don't define what you mean by proof, then you could just dismiss any of it and say, that's not proof, right? So uh, can you reword your question? And he said, okay, can you give me any legitimate reason that God exists? I said, okay, I can. Let me ask you a few questions. Okay. Do you believe stuff exists? So that's our beginning point. Yes. Okay. Pretty obvious. Now, the things that you believe exist, do you think they have always existed or was there some point in the past where everything came into existence? And so what I'm appealing to now in their understanding is the Big Bang, basically. That's when the universe started. Now, I know some Christians are uncomfortable with the Big Bang and there's discussions about that. It doesn't bother me a bit because it fits really nicely into our story in the beginning, bang, you know, Genesis 1-1. <clears throat> it makes sense. So I'm just going to accept that for the sake of discussion. Yeah, okay, it all came in the beginning. I can say, here's my question that really matters, I told the gentleman. What caused everything to come into existence? What caused the Big Bang? Now listen, you only have two options. This is easy. Either something caused it or no thing caused it. All right, something caused it or no thing, it was uncaused. Now, some might think that the universe could come into existence by itself with no cause, but let me just say, it's not the odds on favorite. In fact, it's worse than magic. In magic, you have a magician pulling a rabbit out of a hat, right? In this case, you don't have any magician. And you got no hat, you just got the rabbit coming out, right? The universe. Now, think about this for a moment. Let's say your wife came home from work one day and she looked in the garage and said, honey, there's a brand new Mercedes SL sitting in the garage, where did that come from? And you say, it just popped into existence out of nothing, honey. <laughs> Happens all the time. That's the way people think the universe began. Is she going to believe you? No, probably not for good reason. It's not the odds on favorite, as I pointed out. Let me make this really simple for you. This is technically called, what I just described, it's called the Kalam cosmological argument. Philosopher, Christian philosopher William Lane Craig has done a lot of writing about this. I'm going to save you a lot of money. You don't have to buy his books. It's going to cost him some royalties, but here's the Kalam cosmological argument in a nutshell. Ready? Write this down. A Big Bang needs a Big Banger. <laughs> All right? Pretty straightforward. A Big Bang needs a Big Banger. In other words, it didn't bang itself. Now, the first time I gave this particular talk, I gave it in Katerichi, Poland to a large audience of uh, Christians who were dealing with naturalism there on the continent. 
And as I was working on this section, the Big Bang Point section, I was in the hotel. It's a touristy area where the conference was at. There's a lot of people hanging out and drinking and dancing and carrying on and socializing. And as I was working on this particular section, all of a sudden, in, the, in that whole area, I heard a big bang. This is a true story. This really happened. And everything went dead silent. Now, what were people thinking when they heard the big bang? I know what you're thinking. They were thinking, what was that? Now, that might be what they said, but that's not what they were thinking. They weren't thinking, what was that? They knew what it was. It was a what? A big bang. They were asking what caused that. And I promise, nobody was tempted to think, oh, that's nothing. The bang banged itself. (laughs) You see how that's just a very straightforward concept. Now, I'm going to show you that naturalists actually know better on this. I was at a dinner party sitting across from an 80-year-old young man, and he announced to the party, much to his parents' chagrin, that he was an atheist. They didn't know this. And he had an attitude about it, too. He was carrying on and on about how believing in God was so irrational and unreasonable. Now I'm sitting right across from him. His dad is sitting to my right. And so I engage him in conversation on this particular point. And he's not interested in talking about it at all. You know, he's just, like I said, an attitude going back and forth. Nope, no way, irrational. He's not even listening, all right? So I asked him, look at that front door over there across the room. If somebody knocked on that door, what would you think? Would you think that the knock knocked itself? Or would you think that someone was doing the knocking? Well, like I said, he wasn't interested in discussion. He shut me down, so I wasn't going to pursue it any longer. Except for 15 minutes later, right at dessert, all of a sudden, as God is my witness, I am not making this story up either. I make some stories up, but not these two. Fifteen minutes later, on that door. Who knocks on doors anymore? They're doorbells. Somebody's knocking on the door. He lifts his head in surprise and says, who's that? And I said, no one. Now, the real important thing here was not kind of a clever retort. It was what he did. He got up and he answered the door because he was convinced that the odds-on favorite wasn't that the knock knocked itself, but that someone was knocking, okay? So So this is the first point. This is the bump of stuff. Stuff is all around us. Why? Where did it come from? Naturalists have no adequate answer. We do. We can explain this feature of reality, a big bang needs to be a big banger. They've got to say something wildly counterintuitive that everything came from no thing. The universe was uncaused. That's the bump of stuff. Okay, next bump. This one's a little trickier, but I'm going to try to guide you through it, all right? It's very important. I want you to think about the most frequently raised, most durable, most difficult objection that has been raised against Christianity or theism. People talk about God and atheists are present. What is the problem that they 
almost always bring up the problem of, this is audience participation time, the problem of evil, right, yeah, we all know this. If we talk with people that's come to the problem, how can there be a God when there's so much evil in the world? So let's call this the bump of bad. This is something that that atheists are bumping into all of the time. They raise it as a common objection because we all know that evil is an objective feature of the world. That is, evil is out there, all right? And when people do evil, that requires some kind of explanation from Christians given God's power and His goodness. Now, I agree with that. I think it does require an explanation. I can't give it here, but I want to make another observation. Um, the presence of evil in the world is not consistent with naturalism. This is a bump they can't explain, all right, the bump of bad. And you can make the point this way, dream up the most morally grotesque thing you can imagine, and often it's the atheist who's going to offer it anyway. Uh, I gave this talk first right outside of Auschwitz, I was 30 miles away from Auschwitz at the time. But you can talk about sexual slavery or you can talk about global warming, whatever it is that pushes their hot button. In other words, the thing that they complain about. So you describe this, and frankly, you can go to most daily newspapers and see something on the front page. Okay? So you look at the event and you ask the naturalist, the atheist, what do you make of that? And we know what they make of it. They tell us that's evil. Okay, now here's another very important question. When you say that's evil, are you describing the object itself, the event itself, what actually happened, or are you simply describing your own personal response? Okay, now this distinction is important because it's the distinction between objective morality, things are bad out there, and relativism which is the idea that morality is just an individual opinion. An individual make, I have my morality, you have your morality, don't push your morality on me. You've heard people say that. Well, this is relativism. Morality is just in the individual, that's all it is, okay? Well, let me tell you something. If morality is just in the individual, there is no problem of evil. There's no evil out there. Okay, there's just things that some people think are evil and other people think are fine. That's all you have, okay? And to make this maybe a little bit more clear, think of Germany and the Autobahn, okay? This is their super highways out in Germany, okay? Can you break the speed limit on the Autobahn? No, why not? There are no speed limits. If there are no speed limits, you can't break the speed limit, right? Doesn't matter how fast you're going, you're not breaking any law because there's no law regarding that thing, okay? Relativism is the same way. It says there's no law out there regarding our behaviors. We just have personal opinions, some like 60 miles an hour, some like 120 miles an hour, that's all. So if there are no laws out there, you can't disobey any laws out there, and therefore there can't be any evil, therefore there can't be any problem of evil. Now, are you good with that? No problem of evil? I'm not. Why not? Because there is a problem of evil. It's obvious. 
even to the naturalist, but the naturalist who is a relativist cannot make sense of that. And almost all naturalists are relativists. There was uh, Richard Dawkins. There is no good, there is no evil. He's being consistent with his naturalism at that point. But we know better. That's why we complain about the problem of evil. It actually gets worse for the, the naturalistic atheists. I want you to think about this. Let's forget about the Autobahn for a moment. Let's just consider a land that's not a country. There's no government. Can you break the speed limit there? No, you can't break the speed limit if there is no government to make laws against speeding. Do you see that? No government, no laws, no laws, no law breaking, right? Now, I just want you to transfer that concept. It's a very straightforward, simple concept. If there is no governing authority over the universe, how can there be any universal speed limits? That is, speed limits, moral requirements that apply to everybody. There can't be. And if there are no universal speed limits, then there are no breaking of those universal moral laws. And therefore, again, there cannot be a problem of evil. You see, people think that the problem of evil is one of the best arguments against God, I think it's one of the best arguments for God, not against God. Because without a moral lawmaker in the universe, there can't even be evil or good for that matter, okay? And every single time that an atheist bumps in to um, morality and points out things that are evil, you point out to him, well, wait a minute, how does that make sense? in your worldview. Now, very, very quickly here, because I don't have time to go into detail, but I'm going to say this quickly. The common response at this point is for the atheist to go to Darwin. Well, evolution has caused this to happen, okay? We have evolved morality, okay? I want you to think about that claim. What if it turns out that my genes have evolved to cause me to believe that it is wrong to speed in a school zone, to go fast, drive fast. Or, or let me put it, that, what if your genes have, devo uh, have, have developed in that way? Why do we have to obey our genes? What if my genes did not evolve that way? Your genes tell you to be nice. My genes don't tell me to be nice. How can you make that a requirement on me? The point that I'm making here is, if evolution is in play here regarding morality, the best it can do is give us personal, private, subjective, relativistic morality. It cannot give us morality out there. It can only give us morality inside here. And that's not enough to make sense of the problem of evil, okay? If there's a problem of evil out there, Darwin's not going to help you in this particular point. Don't miss this. Naturalism can only give you relativism, period. It cannot give you real morality, and if it can't give you real morality, then there is no problem of evil. But guess what? There is a problem of evil. That means naturalism is false. What about Christianity? Problem of evil. Well, it needs to be spoken to. It's another talk, but I'll just make this observation. Our entire story is all about the problem of evil. It starts in the third chapter, and it doesn't end till 66 books later. I was thinking about the music, This Is My Father's World. It, it, it dealt with that issue. 
towards the end, talking about, wow, things aren't great in this world, but the battle is not over yet. There's still time to go. And that's the case here. Our story is not finished yet. Our story engages evil and gives an answer to it. And this brings me to my final point here. I've talked about how with the bump of stuff, naturalism cannot explain where things came from. Christian theism can. With the bump of bad, naturalism cannot make any sense out of good or bad, and so it can't explain the problem of evil or good or morality in the world, but Christianity can. Here's the third thing. It's, I call it the bump of me, and that's the existential crisis. Now, we cannot talk about the existential problem that humans experience without uh, talking about the soul, and we don't talk enough about the soul. We make vague references to spirit here, but um, I want to talk about the soul for a moment because the soul is a, is a real part of everybody. It's actually the most real thing that you are in touch with every waking moment of your life because your soul is what you're aware of when you introspect. And it is the thing that mediates all of your sensory, sensory experiences of your body. All of those experiences come through your soul. In fact, your soul can reproduce those experiences even without using the body. And I'll give you an example of this in, in just a moment. But to, to give you an idea about how big a problem the existence of the soul, that is our consciousness, is for the naturalist, New atheist Daniel Dennett has come out publicly, he's a philosopher, and said, there is, consciousness is an illusion, is what he said. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Consciousness, which is the soul's awareness of itself, does not fit in a naturalistic worldview. But, of course, atheists, naturalists bump into the existence of the soul all the time. So how do they explain it? Daniel Dennett says it's an illusion, okay? Now, that is one of the silliest things I have ever heard an educated person say, and I'll tell you why. What is an illusion? An illusion is when your conscious self is being appeared to in a false way. In other words, only conscious beings have illusions. Rocks don't have illusions, right? Only conscious things have the illusions. But if consciousness is an illusion, what is having the illusion of consciousness? You with me on this? Is the illusion having an illusion? Oh my goodness. OMG. That's silly. Consciousness cannot be an illusion, but that is what the atheist must say because it doesn't fit in his world. Now, there are three things that are important about the soul that I want to focus in on to make this last point. First is people know they have a soul. Souls are real, okay? Uh, we've been trying to be talked out of it by naturalists, but it's obvious that we do. And in case you're not sure, I'm just going to do a little exercise with you. Remember I told you a moment ago that you could... Well, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to... I'll come back to that in a moment. Let me just do the exercise, okay? What I'd like you to do is I'd like you to close your eyes for just a moment, and I want you to, to think about something. Here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about your mom at the kitchen sink doing dishes. Okay, for you millennials, that's really sexist, I know, but I'm an old guy, so bear with me here, all right? Okay, here's my question. What color blouse is she wearing? Look at it. What color blouse? 
Okay, now I want you to open your eyes. Now, what color blouse did you see? Somebody. Yellow? That's what I see. I see yellow. Red? Green? Okay, uh, lots of different colors. You all, wait, you all saw that? Where was that that you saw? Where was that image of your mother wearing the colored blouse doing a chore around the house? Where was that? I'll tell you one thing, it wasn't one place it wasn't. It wasn't in your brain because you couldn't crack open your brain when you were thinking about that. See your mom sitting in there washing dishes. It wasn't in your brain. It was somewhere else. Was it real? Was it real? Of course it was real. What you saw was real. It wasn't really your mom, but you saw a real image. Now, where was that real image? It was in your soul. Because your soul can recall all of these things of the senses. You can taste a strawberry. You could feel fur. You can smell a rose. You can, you can hear Beethoven's fifth. How many heard, just heard it? Dun, 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 dun. How many heard it? You ever get a song stuck in your head? Last time I was here, I was sitting right there, and I listened to a beautiful hymn that was so fabulous, it got stuck in my head for weeks. Now I hate it. <laughs> but it, where was that? We say it was stuck in my head, but it wasn't in my brain. It was in my soul. That's where I was hearing the sound, okay? There's a great little exercise to increase your confidence of the reality of your soul, but it's something you already know intuitively, okay? Souls are real, okay? Second thing you need to know is souls are the kind of thing that makes you absolutely wonderful. Our soul makes us special. It isn't that we have a soul, because other creatures have souls, but we have a soul that's unique. We have a soul that is made in the image of God. What makes us value, valuable has nothing to do with our physical bodies, okay? How do we know that? Because we are object to ethnic cleansing. What is ethnic cleansing? It's when you kill a human being because of something that's unacceptable about their physical body. We realize that one's value goes beyond their physical body. This is intuitive. This is why we tell our kids, don't treat each other like animals. We are different. We are special. But the special thing about us is not in our body. It is in our souls, the beautiful imprint of God that we have there. And this sets us apart from everything else. But there's a third thing that we know about our souls. It's not just that we have them. It's not just that they're beautiful, but also that they're terribly broken. There's not just something wrong with the world. There is something wrong with us as well. We are morally broken. A few years back, I, I met a young man named Guillaume Bignon. He's a Parisian former atheist. And he told me his story. He told me about how he, as, an, as a Parisian, as a European, he just would not even countenance the idea of God's existence. But he met a Christian girl, and he wanted to make good with that Christian girl, so he figured he'd try to destroy Christianity in order to do that. And he started reading the New Testament, the Gospels in particular. And that started to get him. And as he's reading through the Gospels, He's asking a question over and over again. He told me, I kept writing down on my notes, why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? And then as I got through the Gospels, I realized God, something did, God did something to me as I was reading, he said. The way he put it was, God reactivated my conscience. And then he said, that was not a pleasant experience. He told me I was physically crippled 
by guilt, not knowing what to do. In other words, this reality of the human condition seized upon him. He'd been able to ignore it for a long time, but God reactivated his conscience. And most people don't need their conscience to be reactivated. They're already aware, even if they're atheists, even if they're naturalists, that there's something wrong. And it isn't just broken, it's moral. There's guilt they're to blame, and they don't know what to do with it. And as he, as he was crushed under the weight of his own sense of guilt, it suddenly occurred to him, that's why Jesus had to die. He died for me. As the book of Romans said, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And at that moment, he gave himself to Christ and became a Christian. You see, his naturalism had no ability to explain the guilt, the crushing sense of obligation, blame that he was feeling. Only God could solve that problem. Only God through Jesus. And frankly, I don't think you have to convince atheists of this. Even atheists, naturalists that tell me they have no guilt, I don't believe them. The reason I don't believe them is because I know that they have to live in God's world and they, have, and they are made in the image of God and they also are consistent, live consistently what, what the truth says about them, that they're broken and they already know this. And even though they can deny it to me in the quietude of their own life, they realize something has gone wrong. Even atheists must live in the world that God made. So here's my suggestion. Talked about the bump of stuff, the bump of bad, and the bump of me. I want you, when you're talking with your atheist naturalistic friends, uh, to, to just pay attention to their conversation. And when they bump into something like the three things that I mentioned, though there are more, that, that is inconsistent with their view, their worldview, that doesn't fit in that worldview box, but fits comfortably in ours. In other words, our view does explain the world the way it really is, then just point that out. Try to be clever, maybe use questions, even catch them by surprise. So what's going on with that? You're, you're an atheist, right? Yeah, right. Okay, so, um, and you're saying, well, that's evil over there. Well, what do you mean? Do you mean that that's evil in itself or that's just your feelings? No, I think it's evil in itself. Well, how do you make sense of that as an atheist? Oh, Darwin did that. So you're saying that those people are just not obeying their genes and that's the problem? Why do they have an obligation to obey the revolution? I don't get that. See the problem there? So I'm using questions now to maneuver. I wrote a book on that. I think I talked on it recently, last time I was here, two years ago. It's called Tactics. It's available in the bookstore. But, but this is just a way of maneuvering and conversation. Point it out every single time that they bump into reality, graciously with questions, but try to help them see that their worldview does not explain the world as it really is. Help them to see that this is God's world. This is our Father's world that God is the best explanation for the way things really are. Father, thank you so much that we don't have to guess, we don't have to take wild leaps of faith. The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament 
shouts forth its praise. Your praise, Father. Everywhere we look, we see signs that what you have revealed to us about reality is actually true. Please help us to take confidence in that and help us to use that as an as a, as a effective uh, means of getting the attention of people who have denied you but desperately need you. We need you, Father, to help us to do that effectively. We ask for that help for Christ's sake. Amen.